0: You can extract some fermentable sugars from unmalted grains. In fact, there are recipes that use unmalted grains, but I think it's generally trickier and less efficient. Okay. Don't quote don't quote me on that. You're probably gonna get a, a caller be like Emma's wrong about that.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna actually I'm gonna use that quote as like the quote for this episode. <laughs> okay, that'll great. that'll be the starting part. Awesome. What's up everybody, I'm Blake Fletcher and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast where we explore the interesting paths people take In life. If you would like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash half hour intern. In today's episode, I speak with Emma Christensen, who is an accomplished food writer, um, but we are not going to be talking about food writing. What we are going to talk about is home brewing beer. So Emma, in addition to all of her usual food writing, has written two really awesome books about brewing beer. She's written Brew Better Beer and True Brews, both of which are fantastic books and they can teach you a lot about brewing beer and they'll also give you a lot of different recipes for different beers that you can brew Um, but she will teach us all about the equipment needed and the cost that you need to invest into brewing beer uh, the ingredients that we're going to use to brew beer the process of brewing beer like what exactly is happening scientifically and uh, different problems that might arise and she'll let us know if we can trust that our first batch will be any good or if we're just going to have to dump it all down the sink And, uh, and then we'll also talk a little bit about how since she has started at home brewing and is such an expert in this. How it has kind of changed her perspective on beer and her enjo- enjoyment of drinking beer. So, um, really cool episode for you guys. I hope you all like it. Without further ado, here is home brewing. Emma, thanks so much for joining me on the show.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have always wanted to learn about homebrewing. And my sister is probably going to be very angry hearing me say that because my sister homebrews sometimes. But I've just I I don't know, like I've never reached out and I know a few other people and it's just never really worked out. And I feel so honored and happy that you are the person that I am going to get to learn from and that we're going to get to learn from because you are like a beer brewing expert like a home brewing expert you've written books on it like you really 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 know what you're talking about so this could be so rad so thank you so much
0: <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> happy to be here
1: <laughs> so why don't we start out with uh equipment and equipment related stuff so what is the absolute minimal equipment that we would need if we wanted to start home brewing and what is like the absolute minimal amount of money that we could spend on this if we wanted to get started
0: Yeah. So my best answer to that question is, um, I say start with a one-gallon batch. Um, A lot of people, a lot of homebrewers, get into this and they want to do a five-gallon batch, which is big and like you make so much beer and it's like awesome and get to boil lots of liquid. But it's (laughs) but it's actually. It's a little bit harder. The equipment is more expensive. The equipment is bigger. So I say scale it down for your first batch. Um, Start with a one-gallon batch. And for that, the equipment is pretty minimal. Like um, uh, You need a pot, and for the most part, you can use any pasta pot that you have in your kitchen. Um, and that is for boiling the grains. That's one of the first steps of the home process. And then you need a couple other, like, brewing-specific things, which you can pick up at any home brewing store, which are all over the place now since home brewing is so popular, or you can buy it online. Um, like, one of the stores that I really like is Northern Brewer. They're out of Minnesota. Um, another place is More Beer. Um, they are in California and on the East Coast somewhere, too. So either of those places or any local home brewing store is going to have all the equipment that you need um so i'll just run down like some of the basic stuff like you need
1: wait hang on emma two quick questions about uh, already those first two parts so you mentioned the one gallon thing yeah i've only ever seen people brewing like in these big five gallon glass jugs so um if you're doing one gallon does does the jug need to be glass like do you need a glass one gallon jug
0: um you do. I do what is called, <laughs> stop me if this is like becoming too complicated already, but I do what's called a two-stage fermentation. So I like to do, th- basically there are two stages of making beer. The first stage um, is the really active stage. That's when the yeast are like going crazy. They're eating all the sugar. They're making the beer. It's like party central um, for the yeast. Um, and I like to do that in a bucket. It just gives the yeast a little bit more room, um, you uh, have less risk of blowing out the top (laughs) than you do in a glass uh, jug or carboy. Um, So I let it ferment for that first week in a bucket, and then I transfer it to a glass jug. Um, And both of those things are available in one-gallon batch sizes. Okay.
1: so if you you would need to buy special, unless you just happen to have like a one gallon glass thing sitting around, it's not like you can use yeah. like an old milk jug or something.
0: Definitely not a milk jug. But what you can use is like those glass jugs that you buy cider in. So just any one gallon glass jug.
1: Okay, Basically cool.
0: will work. Yeah.
1: And then the other piece on the one gallon thing is you mentioned just using like a regular uh, pot you would have for pasta lying around to mm-hmm. uh, to cook the grains if you were doing a five gallon thing to start out with, would you then have to get some much larger thing to be cooking yes, the grains in? So exactly. <laughs> okay. So wow. You really can cut down a lot of costs by just going to exactly. the,
0: the pot is one of the biggest costs when you're going up to a five gallon batch. And there are ways it's, it gets kind of complicated to explain. There are ways you can kind of get around it. Like you can do extract brewing. You can do, um, brew in a bag. There are ways that you can kind of skirt around having to buy a big pot, but eventually you're going to need a really big pot. And those are, those are really expensive.
1: Okay. So all in all, this sounds way better due to do the one gallon first, because it's quite likely that you're going to have way more of the ingredients around your house or, or the equipment around your house already than you would if you were exactly. trying to do five gallon. Cool.
0: Exactly. Yeah. All right. And, so what and else also do we need? With, also with one gallon batch or with uh, the equipment for one gallon batches, the things are just less expensive overall. Like, um, let's see, let me pull up my little spreadsheet. So like a two gallon food grade plastic bucket is about $5 versus $15 for a six gallon food grade plastic bucket. So like $5 versus $15. And all this stuff just kind of adds up after a while. So if you're looking for like cost effective, you know, small scale, just way to kind of see if you like brewing, just get a taste for it. I always say start with one gallon. If you really love it, it's not that big of a deal to upgrade to a five gallon setup.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, what uh, what other sorts of things do we need?
0: So, the bucket and the jug are the two big things. Um, like those are the main things you need. Um, what's called an airlock. Um, an airlock fits inside the lid um, of the bucket and also inside of the stopper that comes with the jug, and that just allows gases to escape while the beer is fermenting, but prevents things from outside coming in. So, it's just kind of a way of keeping keeping the system clean and and keeping your beer. Um, protected while it's doing its fermentation thing
1: why would you not uh like i've brewed kombucha in the past and i know that you brew obviously you've written a book on that as well um i know you brew kombucha like when i brew kombucha i just take like an old shirt or like a cheesecloth (laughs) or whatever and put that over the top can you not just put cheesecloth over the top
0: Um, it's not ideal, especially if you're starting off, there are advanced ways that you can do beer. Um, you can make what, what are called sour beers or wild fermented beers, spontaneous fermented beers, but that's kind of like, you know, brewing master's program (laughs) kind of a thing. So you're like Um, brewing
1: at your own peril. If you are uh...
0: a little bit, it's a little, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely a little trickier, a little more of an advanced advanced move. Okay. Um, but yeah, when you're so when you're starting off with beer, I think especially when you're first learning it, um, the idea is that you want to keep the whole system closed. You want the only things you want in the beer, fermenting your beer, affecting the flavor of your beer, are the things that you are choosing to put in there. So you keep everything sanitized. You keep everything kind of sealed off and in this closed system. Um, and that way you just control the fermentation. You control what's happening. Um, and the other thing you do is um, you uh, you lock out air. You lock out oxygen, which can eventually get into your beer and cause some weird flavors and weird other weird uh, Uh, reactions to happen
1: Mm, interesting yeah okay so uh anything else
0: uh you need a couple things for transferring the beer from one container to another um and those are it's basically a siphon system um it's just like siphoning gas from a car Uh, not that any of us have ever (laughs) had to do that probably but um it's it's a little bit tricky but it's just one of those things you you do it once and then you kind of have the muscle memory of of operating a siphon. Um, and let's see, siphon, um, various hoses, uh, bottles, bottle fillers, bottle caps, bottle capper, um, for when you get to the bottling stage. And that's about it. Um, if
1: you're only making one gallon, so do you need I'm wondering like if when you're and I'm jumping way ahead here to the the brewing part already but I'm wondering if um if you're only doing 1 gallon do you really need to put it into bottles or can you just pour it straight from that gallon container into a glass let's say for yourself or is there too much like sediment and just kind of crap floating around on the bottom Well there
0: are two two things. One is that sediment. Like you end up kind of stirring up a lot of sediment if you just pour it straight from the jug. And the other thing is carbonation. Um when you're making beer um so you get this like sugary liquid. It's called the wort. Um, that's kind of the the baby beer, the unfermented beer. Uh, you add yeast. Yeast eats the sugar in that in that wort and makes carbon dioxide and alcohol as a as a result. The alcohol stays in the beer. That's what makes it alcoholic. But the carbon dioxide actually floats at the top. It floats out the airlock that we were talking about. Um, and so when you bottle the beer, you actually have to trap the carbon dioxide in the bottle to, to get it to carbonate. Does that make sense? The, y- yeah. Absolutely. Keep it simple. yeah. So, so, so that's what the bottling process does. It, it, it traps the, that carbon dioxide, it prevents it from leaving and, and makes it carbonated. However, you can't, you don't necessarily have to go through the whole bottling thing, um, buying a capper and everything. You can get what are called swing top bottles. Um, and that's kind of a, a good middle ground. It, it comes with, them. Um, those bottles come with like, uh, a swing top. Yeah. Just like (laughs) super like
1: hip, like hipster bottles that are around nowadays for like cold brew coffee and stuff like that.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And actually those, you could use those. I I'm pretty sure you could use those, um, things under pressure need a certain amount of like, it, it needs to be a heavy duty swing top bottle. You can't just use, you know, a bottle that you get from Ikea. Like it's good to either use, a reused bottle that, you know, had carbonated, uh, carbonated liquid in it before. Um, or you can go to a home brewing store and buy it for like, I think you can buy like a 12 pack of Swing Top bottles for 20 bucks or something like that. And you can reuse those again and again and again.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Before we get into all the actual brewing stuff, I would <laughs> sure. love to know if there are any other sorts of like, if there's any other fancy equipment that the even if let's say even if we were only brewing one gallon and we just really wanted to like break the bank and go go all out is there like extra fancy optional equipment that you can do <laughs> if you want to and and like why would you want to do any of these things
0: you can always find fancier equipment <laughs> like there are there's a whole world of like equipment nerdiness that you could just go into with homebrewing and there's it's 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 like a willy wonka that's not the right that's not the right let's see it's it's like uh I, it's like a kid in a toy store like you can walk in and buy so many gadgets um some of which are really useful some of which are just kind of fun and shiny to have um for a 1 gallon batch i think there's not too much like the 1 gallon process is just so simple you're you're working with such a small amount of grains and such a small amount of liquid that it's kind of probably not worth it to, to upgrade a lot of stuff. Um, the number one upgrade for a one gallon batch is probably to buy, um, a slightly larger pot, um, that the, the stock pot, um, that you use in that first stage, most pasta pots will work. They're about two gallons. It gets a little bit tight, um, and you kind of have to keep an eye on it. If you want to like give yourself some breathing room, then you should buy a three gallon pot. And you'll be totally clear, um but when you get up into five gallon batches, oh there's so much equipment you can you can buy these force chillers that chill your your work down in like like five minutes. you can buy uh you can buy <laughs> like I can see it in my head, you can buy um uh, sparging equipment. That's another step that happens and when you're doing all-grain brewing. There's so the many cool there, terms.
1: I love words. Oh God, I love sparging. Like, these are yeah. great words.
0: Half of the battle with learning how to brew beer is just like getting the vocab down and understanding what these things are. It feels so like foreign at first, and then you find yourself just like, oh yeah, sparge that and wort
1: <laughs> that. And like <laughs> I like these words so much because it's really nice when you learn a new word, and it just sounds like like the area it comes from or something you know and it's like if i'm yeah. drinking a beer it's it's always good to like picture yourself as like a viking like drinking your beer out <laughs> of like a buffalo horn or something you know and yes. if, when you're saying words like sparging and wort it's like those are that's <laughs> definitely like viking talk right there
0: yeah or like pirate talk sparge the wort.
1: <laughs> yeah totally <Yarr>. exactly
0: <laughs> so anyways a short answer to your question is yes there's there's plenty of shiny equipment that you can If you have a disposable income, you can go crazy. And, I mean, there are some people I know that, I mean, these homebrewers, they're not brewing professionally. They're not selling their beer. They're not doing anything like that. And they have, like, basically mini breweries down in their basement or in their garage. Like, these are full-on, like, pump systems and, like burners that blast heat it's incredible like there's i can only imagine
1: how addictive it is like to get and especially i feel like it's um it's such like the bad type of thing to (laughs) to be like that because when like the number of times where i've been a couple of beers deep and like you have this idea, you know, it's something you like, oh, I like have to do this right now. Or like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I should go and buy that extra thing because, you know, and it's like, you you know, you're just a little inebriated. Your, your inhibitions yeah. are a little bit looser. So it makes sense that if you were drinking this beer that you already <laughs> brewed and you're like, you know what, I just I am going to drop another 500 bucks on blah, blah, blah. You know, like yeah. it, it just goes hand in hand.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a little the impulse control can be a little bit of a challenge when you get into this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. So why don't we start talking about the whole brewing process, everything that happens? And if as we're going through this, if you could point out, um, obviously, each of the different ingredients to us and uh, like what the significance of that ingredient is.
0: Sure, Sure. Well, why don't I just start out like explaining the ingredients and then kind of explaining the basic process and then we can kind of take it from there. Let's do it. Um so all beer like it, any beer you drink any commercial beer any craft beer any beer that you drink when you're on vacation in Germany like any beer at its base is really four main ingredients um you've got malted grains which are basically they're usually barley but they can be also be wheat they can be uh, uh spelt they can be rye they can be any kind of grain and malted, I'm putting that in kind of quotation marks, in you know, in my in my mind. <laughs> malted um, <laughs> uh, just means that they're kind of partially sprouted, and that just makes um, there's a lot of like carbohydrates and starches and stuff inside of the grains, and malting it, partially sprouting it, um, just makes those carbohydrates more accessible to you. Those carbohydrates are going to get broken down into simple sugars. Simple sugars end up becoming yeast food. So in a roundabout way, those malted grains are just yeast food. So um, if so the grains the were not
1: malted, then the yeast would not even really be able to break them down.
0: Probably not. Um, and I'll explain it a little bit more when we get kind of more into the process side. But yeah, you need that molting step in order to make beer, basically. I You, might, you, c- you can extract some fermentable sugars from unmalted grains. In fact, there are recipes that use unmalted grains, but I think it's generally... Trickier and less efficient. Okay. Don't quote. Don't quote me on that. There, you're probably going to get a, a caller be like, Emma's wrong about that.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna actually. I'm gonna use that quote as like the quote for this episode. That'll. <laughs> okay, that'll great. be the starting part. Awesome.
0: Awesome. <laughs> um, okay. So you've got the malted grains. That's one. Um, The next key ingredient, this is really key, is water. Um, Water is the base of your beer. Beer is mostly water. Um, And you can use any water that you have. You don't have to get super fancy about it. As long as you like your water, like the water you get out of your tap, as long as you think it's pretty good for drinking, um, then it's fine for brewing. Uh, You can use filtered water if you want to get a little bit fancier. Um, And then if you want to get really fancy, there are a lot of like minerals and little things that you can add into the water if you want to like replicate the exact water of you know this pilsner area of germany or other brewing areas of the world um but when you're just starting out don't stress about it just use just use your water it's totally fine So multigrains water. Um, The next thing is hops. Um, Hops is actually a relative newcomer to brewing, and some people would argue that it's not even really an essential ingredient. Um, Hops are basically, they're a flower, and they flavor the beer they give it a little bit of balance the the malts are very sweet and have this kind of nutty caramelly flavor in the beer the hops add a little bit of bitterness Um, they also add some aromas and flavors uh, which can kind of range from um they can add like fruity flavors to the beer like apricot and pineapple or they can add like a piney flavor or um yeah like like the typical flavor that
1: people would think of when they drink an ipa or something just like very piney
0: yeah, piney, citrusy, um, lemony. Uh, yeah, a lot of those, um, a lot of those aromas and flavors. Um, see if there's anything else I want to say about hops right now. Um, you don't need hops to brew beer. Like it's really just a flavoring. Like it's, there's no, if you forget to add hops to your beer, like You'll miss that flavor, but it, but your beer will still become beer. <laughs> like, so the not, only two
1: ingredients that make a beer beer are malted grain and yeast. It doesn't even need hops. Malted grain,
0: you need water, um,
1: right? Right. right. <laughs> and then,
0: yeah, <laughs> and, then, and then yeast is yeah, yeast is the fourth ingredient. Um, and yeast is fun because any yeast will ferment any beer. Um, and as these beer styles have evolved, there are particular yeasts that have kind of evolved to match those styles. So you have like a wheat. Uh, let me show you. I'm getting my terms right. Um, you can get like a hefeweizen yeast to make your hefeweizen beer. Um, you can get like a Belgian strain of yeast to make your triple or your double or any Belgian style you want to do. Um, but you can really mix and match. Um, and yeast will yeast changes the flavor of the beer a little bit. Like it, it kind of every yeast strain has its own particular like flavors that it brings out or um i'm trying to explain it um every yeast is just a little bit different and will give your beer something else so i think when you're first starting off it's probably good to like play it safe and just match the hefeweizen yeast with the hefeweizen beer but once you get into it it's a whole world and you can really experiment with making like you can use uh, a an american west coast yeast to make your hefeweizen and give it kind of a more crisp like west coast american feel you can um you can bring out fruity flavors in an ipa by using a belgian style yeast like there are a lot of ways that you can mix and match and just have a lot of fun and really customize your beer to your own taste
1: how many different types of yeast are there
0: oh my god (laughs) there are so many different kinds of yeast and now more than ever like maybe, let's see, we're in 2016 now, maybe like 15, 20 years ago, you could really only buy a couple varieties of dry yeast. There are only a couple, what I mean to say is there were only a couple varieties of yeast available to homebrewers. Now you can basically get almost every variety of yeast that's available to the big breweries. Um, So it really is like a Willy Wonka situation going into the homebrew store. You can... Lots of different kinds of yeast.
1: That's so great. So if if any of us have ever been to like a really good liquor store that has, let's say, hundreds of different beers on the shelf and you're just like, or let's say they have hundreds of different just IPAs, like nothing else, Mm -hmm. as is basically the case in every liquor store in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. Uh, like... And you're thinking to yourself, like, come on, like, how different can all these IPAs taste or how many different ways can we have an IPA? The answer is it's basically infinite when you combine yeah. the different numbers of yeast with the different numbers of hops with a different number of malted grain. Like, uh, it can just taste infinite.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of awesome.
1: <laughs> love that.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, all right, let's talk about the, uh, the brewing process now that we know more about the ingredients.
0: Yeah. Okay. So... The brewing process, um, the basic thing to remember here is that you want to make a sugary liquid. Um, You want to add yeast. The yeast eat the sugar in the liquid, and they make carbon dioxide and alcohol as a result. And once the yeast eat all the sugar in your liquid, then you have beer. So at first, that sugary liquid is called wort, W-O-R-T, but it's pronounced wort. Um, If you pronounce it wort, that's fine I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna say anything <laughs> um, and then through that fermentation process you get beer out the other side um, the whole process takes um, let's see it ta- I like to give it five weeks total basically you've, you've got your brew day you've got a week of really active fermentation when the yeast are just going bananas eating all of the sugar they can see in your in your worked in your you know, soon to be beer. And then you've got about two weeks where the yeast is calming down and it's kind of, it's eating some of the more complex sugars. Um, There are a couple other reactions happening. Solids that have gotten churned up during that yeast feeding frenzy start to kind of settle down and you get this like sediment on the bottom of your jug. Um, and at that point you can bottle it and then, um, you want it to be another two weeks in the bottle, which is just enough time, gives it enough time for the beer to carbonate in the bottle and, um, and just kind of settle, settle down in the bottle. And so five weeks later you can drink your beer. Okay. Um, So
1: let's break that apart a little bit more. So how do we make the wort? Is that the part where we're just doing the malted barley or whatever malted grain in, in a pot? Um, and you, how long are you cooking that on the stove for?
0: Sure. So basically you mix your malted grains and that is a, your malted grains are going to be that, that's like your recipe for the beer. Um, theoretically, you're following a recipe um, like one of the ones from my book, for instance, or one that's at your homebrew store. They have a bunch of recipes they can give you. And that will be a mix of like um, what are called base malts, which are just kind of pale, neutral flavored uh, malts, but they have a lot of sugar. And then on top of that, you add what are called um, specialty malts, specialty grains, which are often roasted or toasted to a certain degree. Um, they'll get darker in color, and that also will give your beer a darker color and will give your beer more of those kind of toasted, nutty, uh, malty flavors. Mm-hmm. But the further that you toast a grain, the less it has um. The the less sugar it has, or the less uh, the less potential sugar it has. Right, right. So you kind of want this base of you want the base of a lot of just like sugary but bland tasting malts, but then these kind of awesomely tasty but not super sugary malts on top of that. So that's your your grain bill.
1: And now, Um, are you also going to be throwing your hops into this mixture, or do the hops come in at a later point?
0: Usually, the hops come in at a later point. For the most part, this is you can get technical in a lot of different ways here, but let's just say no okay hops hops, you save until later
1: okay now Um, one other question with the this part that we're doing on the stove here first to make our wort um is that are okay so let's say we have a gallon jug that we're going to want to be putting this into do we have to put what like a gallon a half of water on the stove because like a half gallon of it's going to burn away um or evaporate like or do you just go one gallon
0: that's a great question. So this first step is called the mash. And basically what you're doing is you're just steeping those grains in some hot water. It's not super hot. You want it to be like uh, around 150 degrees, which is, you know, it's like nice bath temperature, basically. You let those grains steep in that liquid for about an hour. And that is the step where um the, the water will basically draw out the the starches, the carbohydrates from inside of the grains. And there are enzymes that, that come into play here. The enzymes kick in and they start breaking apart those carbohydrates into simple sugar. Um, so that's the mash step. And then the next step that happens is you want to separate out that delicious sugary water, which is uh, separate that from the grains, from the, the actual solid pieces of grain. The solid pieces of grain, we are not interested in, in anymore. We've gotten everything that we want from those grains, and you basically strain them out, and you can uh, you can compost them, you can feed them to your cow if you have a cow in your backyard. Um, you can do a lot of you you can dry them and, and use them in other um, recipes, but basically, we're done with the grains. Um, and now we have about, hmm, maybe about like three-fourths of a gallon of of this really intensely sugary liquid, this wort. You want to add some extra water to that, and you basically bring it up to maybe like a gallon and a half. Because as you say, this next step is we're going to boil the wort, and a lot of that liquid is going to evaporate off. So you just—the you, end result is you want to get about a gallon of of this liquid. Okay, does that make sense?
1: Totally. I'm I'm okay, so good. interested now, like hearing about this. Uh, I'm so surprised that wort has not become some sort of like uh, popular hipster beverage. Like, how is it that we have cold brew coffees <laughs> everywhere? We obviously everyone loves kombucha. Like, people are drinking like all kinds of coconut water. We have aloe water. We have this. We have that. Like, shouldn't everyone just be drinking wort and feeling like a boss, like your, while they're drinking this is your wort?
0: Next big, your next big marketing thing is going to be hipster home hipster wort this is exciting, <laughs> I, love I love it yeah <laughs> um and at this point, I mean, I encourage people to go ahead and give it a taste um the wort at this point it tastes nothing like beer, like you drink it and you're just like how how in the world does this become the beer that I like to drink at my local bar like it 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 tastes like um well, it's hot for one thing, it's warm at this point it's um it tastes kind of oatmeally like it's really um uh grainy it's incredibly sweet you have tons of sugars in there it's it's kind of syrupy almost too because the the sugars dissolved in the liquid just make almost like a simple syrup that kind of a, a feel yeah um it's tasty but it's also I don't know if you if you market that, I'll be curious to try it. We'll see.
1: Well, see well how I'll it. have to do the really inappropriate thing then and just market it to kids because this sounds like the type of thing that kids would like love. You know, Obviously, because then they get to feel yeah. really cool, like oh, like I'm basically drinking a beer, but you know, it's exactly. not a beer. So yeah,
0: there's no alcohol in it th- at this point, so yeah, it's totally yeah. safe to serve to kids. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So you've got this sugary liquid, and the next step is that you're going to boil it. And there are a couple of reasons why you boil it. Um, the biggest reason is to sanitize it. Uh, boiling sanitizes liquid. Um, so you just want to make sure that when, it's, when your wort is going into the fermenter, it's, it's clean of any bacteria, any wild yeast, anything like that. Like we talked about before, you want a closed system. You want everything in the fermenter that you want there and nothing else. Um, and the other reason why we boil it is that this is the stage when we add the hops. Um, and you can add hops. You usually boil it for about an hour. That's a typical boil time. And um, for most recipes, you add hops just kind of at a couple different points along the way. You add it at the very beginning of the boil. You add it towards the middle. You add it towards the end. You can add it at other points if you want. And what that basically does is it um, it gives your beer kind of a layered hop flavor those hops that you add at the very beginning, they're going to add a lot of bitterness to the beer. That's where you get those really like tongue-twisting IPAs. They've added a ton of these bittering hops at the very beginning of the boil and just let them boil the whole time. Uh, as you add hops further into the boil, the hops start adding um, flavors and aromas more than that bitterness. Um, so if you want, if you don't like that bitter flavor, then Maybe you don't add any hops at the beginning of the boil, or maybe you just add just enough so that you, you know, get a balance, but you don't. It doesn't become super bitter. But then you add a lot of hops at the very end, so you get a lot of the hop flavors and aromas. Um, those things, like we talked about, like um, like citrus and pine and herb and um, these things that aren't necessarily bitter, but there are there are these hop flavors.
1: Hmm. Um, I mean, it's funny because I drink tea, and it reminds me so much of brewing tea like if you if you oversteep your tea if you leave it in the water for a lot longer that like every tea will start to become very very bitter Um, exactly or you can sometimes just put a ton of tea leaves in with the water and only brew it for like you know 15 seconds and it'll taste so like fragrant and so good
0: yes Uh, yeah that's exactly right um and i can get really technical if you want about hops and like what they have and why they sometimes give things bitterness and sometimes things flavors but um That's uh we'll leave some of the
1: mystery in, yeah.
0: Yeah, you can leave yeah. (laughs) Good. I don't want to overcomplicate things too much here. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've got the wort, you've added the hops. Um, the next thing, basically you're done. Um, and this whole process now, this is your quote unquote brew day. This is the actual making of the beer. A lot of it is hands off. Um, like you're letting the mash just chill out for like an hour and you can go off and have a cup of coffee or a beer or whatever you want to do. And then you let the hops, uh, let the, the wort boil for an hour while you're adding the hops. And that again is pretty hands off. Um, the whole day for a one-gallon batch usually takes about four hours. Um, for a five-gallon batch, it takes a little bit longer just because you're talking about larger volumes. It takes longer for things to heat up and cool down. So anyway, this is your brew day. The last step um, before you add the yeast and let it go do its fermentation job is just that you need to cool down the wort. Ideally, you want to cool it down from boiling to about, well, at least room temperature, about 65 or 70 degrees. Um, mm-hmm or 75 it's if it's in the middle of the summer (laughs) just aim for room temperature ideally you want to do that in about like 20 to 30 minutes um that's easier to do with a one gallon batch oh my Um, gosh
1: i could only imagine you can just throw it in your freezer if you just got a one gallon thing but you could
0: throw it in your freezer usually what i do is i I have a just i just put it in my kitchen sink and then i just crack all of my ice cube trays (laughs) around it or and i have like um sorry i put it in my sink fill the sink with water uh with cold water and then just put ice cubes in it um or freezer packs or anything and you just kind of want to you keep an eye on it stir it every once in a while with a sanitized spoon check the temperature and just let it cool down
1: oh man with Um, a five gallon thing like i don't even know what you're supposed to do. You use
0: a thing that's a that's a shiny equipment upgrade use a thing called uh, a wort chiller and this is a yeah that's a shiny equipment (laughs) Thing that you it, it speeds up the chilling process, um, because yeah, you're right. Otherwise, if you're cooling down five gallons of wort, it's it's it takes a while. You hear stories of uh old school homebrewers who, like, you know, are brewing in the winter and they take the five gallon, you know, pot of boiling hot wort and they put it out in a snowbank outside and let it chill out yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. snowbank. Um, so cool it down. Don't stress a lot about cooling it down in exactly 20 to 30 minutes. Like that's the ideal, but it's not like you're going to ruin your beer if it takes you a little bit longer. Um, cool it down. Um, make sure I'm not missing a step here. Cool it down and then, yeah, pour it in your bucket. Um, like I said, I like to do this first stage of fermentation in a bucket, um, but you could put it into a jug if you wanted a one gallon jug. Um, Add the east, put on the airlock, and then that's it. <laughs> so were, <laughs> you saying,
1: it were you saying that the reason that you do the bucket and not the uh, gallon container is so that way just too much pressure doesn't build up in the gallon container? Exactly,
0: but exactly. You you're said that putting... it has a
1: special top on the thing that allows pressure out but doesn't allow stuff in.
0: Uh, it, um, it, the airlock, when you're inside of a, inside of a glass jug, so you got a gallon of liquid inside a one-gallon glass jug. You've got like an inch or two of headroom in that glass jug, and if you put an airlock in there, when the fermentation really gets going, it just can't keep up. Um, you also have a um, when the beer is fermenting, it kind of pushes up a bunch of like uh, like scuzzy sudsy stuff at the top, and that can build up on the top of the of the jug and yeah. eventually just push the airlock just right out. Um, yeah, I just there are ways that you can kind of like keep an eye on that and avoid that happening. But from for my peace of mind, I just like to put it into the bucket. Um a, a two-gallon bucket ha- gives you like just a nice chunk of headroom. You don't have to worry at all about it pushing out the lid. Um, you just let it do its business. Um the other advantage I think to a one gallon uh, to to doing this first stage of fermentation in a bucket is that um y- you the first stage of fermentation turns up a lot of, um, of that sediment. Like I was talking about the, the scudsy filmy stuff on the top, there are proteins, there are leftover little bits of the malted grains that you didn't strain out quite enough. Know,
1: please tell me that there is some sort of like pirate Viking word for that.
0: <laughs> oh, what is it? Oh, there is a word. I'm totally blanking on it. It's, I just call it sludge. Uh,
1: yeah. It's, it's gotta be the best word yet. Um, I mean, like they must've given that such a good name, you know, <laughs>
0: Actually, I, I, it's. I think it's just called the lees, L E E S.
1: Oh no. I feel like no. there's another
0: word though. I know that's such a delicate name for basically <laughs> sludgy crap that collects at the bottom of your of your bucket.
1: Yeah, for sure. Oh,
0: again, somebody somebody's gonna write in and be like, I can't believe, like it's this word, and and here I am. Yeah. My mind is just a blank.
1: No problem. It's all right. So
0: please write in and correct me. Like, <laughs> yeah. It'll be something awesome. Or we should make up our own word if there's not a word. We will. Yeah,
1: for sure. Um.
0: Anyway, in the bucket, you get this like it's it can be up to like an inch thick this like sludgy sediment layer that collects at the bottom and I just like to get the beer off of that sludgy stuff it's it doesn't it doesn't start affecting the flavor that fast like if you if you let if you left them together for like three months, you might start to get kind of that composty uh, like like swampy aroma in your beer but it, anyway I just like don't like it yeah (laughs) I want my beer to be clean yeah (laughs) for sure you have the ability um, to
1: clean it out if you uh are doing the bucket
0: exactly and then if you if I transfer it into the jug I leave all that sludgy stuff behind um there's less risk that I'm going to transfer some of that sludgy stuff into the bottle when I bottle my beer like I just I just think it's it's a best practice kind of a thing. It's, it's one more step that's maybe a little bit complicated, especially for a new brewer, but I think it's worth it. Um, and and it's one of those things that you do it once or twice and you, 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 you get the muscle memory in there and it'll, it's fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, so basically you do one week, one to two weeks in the bucket. Um, basically you watch for, um, in that airlock, the airlock is filled with a little bit of uh, liquid. Usually, I put a little bit of sanitizing solution in there. And during the, the like super active stage of fermentation, you'll get these bubbles. It, it's in the airlock, and it just goes pop 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 like up through the airlock. And that's basically how you know that fermentation is happening. Um, because this is don't don't open the lid and and peek inside. Don't want to do that because that exposes the inside to the outside and. You want to keep it a closed system. Um, so just keep an eye on the airlock. You'll see lots of bubbles popping up through the airlock, um, and it'll peak after a couple days, and then it'll gradually start to slow after about one to two weeks. And once you see no sign of activity in that airlock, then that's the point at which I transferred over to the jug. Um, let it chill out in the jug for two more weeks. Um, you might see an occasional bubble here or there, but basically the bulk of fermentation is done at this point, and all that you're looking for is for any residual sediment to start to fall out and, and collect on the bottom. Um, you'll get a little bit of that of sludge, but it's much less than if you didn't transfer it to begin with. Um, a little extra fermentation is happening very, very slowly. Um, but basically, this is like the chill-out period. <laughs> you're just like letting the yeast had a party, and now you're just letting it chill out. Um, and then you bottle it. Um, and two weeks later you can drink it.
1: Okay. Well, only two weeks.
0: Yeah, basically. So five weeks total, five weeks from the brew day to the bottling day. Okay. Sorry. Five weeks from the brewing day to like opening it and actually drinking it.
1: Okay, cool. So I would love to know what are the most common problems that come up? And like what we could do to prevent them. And if you could tell us like personally for you, what is like the biggest horror story, I guess, that you've ever (laughs) had? Like what's like the biggest problem that you've had arise personally?
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Let me uh, let me think of my list. So I I think the number one thing to remember is that this is homebrewing. Like it's not it's things things are going to happen. It's not going to go perfectly, especially when you're first learning the process like Things are going to happen, you're like, is this right? Is this wrong? I have no idea. Like, there's a certain amount, there's a learning curve (laughs) with homebrewing, and you just kind of have to go through that. And often with homebrewing, you make one mistake and you have learned your lesson, and you will never make that mistake again. (laughs) So, I think one of the most common things that happens when you are first starting to brew is that you try to do that boil step where you're adding the hops. You try to do that in a pot that's too small. And what often happens is that the wort will start to bubble up and it'll bubble right over the pot. (laughs) That happened to me probably the first two or three times that I brewed beer until I was finally like, okay, like I need a slightly bigger pot. I'm just (laughs) going to have to, if this is actually a hobby that I want to do, I just need to pony up and get a bigger pot. So that's one thing. Um, Sanitation, it's, it both is and isn't a big deal. I think people get really paranoid about it and they get really really worried about sanitation the thing to remember is you want to pay attention to it you want to do the best that you can a little slip up here or there like if you suddenly realize that you're stirring the wort and you forgot to sanitize the spoon like yeah that's a mistake but it's probably not going to destroy your beer like it's don't throw your beer away just let it ferment and see what happens yeah um but you want to make sure that the bucket is clean and sanitized before you put the wort in there. Um, Things like that. So I would say 99% of the time when people email me or when I have my own problems with my own beer, um, like I open up a bottle and it just smells funky, like it smells like gym socks or it's got a weird scum on it. 99% of the time, something happened with the sanitation somewhere along the way. Okay. I was going
1: to ask you that. So like when you're brewing kombucha, it's incredibly visual. The fact that it's gotten like infected, you know, like you, you know, that something got in in there. Um, is it like that when you're brewing beer, like you don't, you don't have to guess, like you'll, you'll know for sure when it's wrong.
0: Exactly. Like if you're wondering, then it's probably okay. (laughs) But if you open it up and you're just like, Oh, this is making my stomach turn. I don't really want to put this Anywhere near my mouth, then it probably was infected, yeah. <laughs> and you just don't want to risk it. I mean, so that if your beer fermented at all, it's the same thing with kombucha or any other ferment. If you got any level of fermentation, you've got alcohol in your in the brew. The pH has dropped. Um, it will be protected against things that that would actually cause you bodily harm. Like you're not going to kill yourself. You're not going to. You're you're not even going to really make yourself ill or sick if you accidentally drink some infected beer. Um, the worst that'll happen is maybe you get a bit of a stomach ache. Um, but anyway, why would you want to drink bad tasting beer? Just it's it's sad. Learn your lesson. Throw it out. Yeah, for <laughs> Move sure. on. We've all done it. Every home brewer has at least one story about a batch that they made that they just like were really sad <laughs> that they had to throw it out. Um, but then you get to make more beer. So that's, that's a perk.
1: Yeah, totally. Um,
0: it's really actually kind of a straightforward process. I think the biggest thing is really the learning curve when you're first starting to do it because everything is unfamiliar. And I think your first batch or two, you just kind of have to accept like, okay, this is going to be really weird and I might not get everything right, but I'm going to do the best I can. And And then you start to learn and you start to, you know, make little tweaks to your process and, and get better.
1: Now, what about the flavor of the beer? Like how good can we expect our first batch to taste? Is it going to taste awful or can we have like a pretty (laughs) freaking good beer for our first
0: one? I think you can have a pretty freaking good beer. Like I I think, um, it's not maybe going to be the best beer. Like you maybe shouldn't quite enter the homebrew competition yet (laughs) with that (laughs) beer, but I'm totally confident that you can make a drinkable, good 5 p.m., you know, come home from work and crack it open beer with your first batch. I, I think that's totally reasonable to, to, to want <laughs> and awesome. to expect.
1: I love that. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about how all this has changed you and like changed the way that you drink beer and the way that you experience beer. Since you've gotten really into home homebrewing, um, has it? like change the way that you shop for beer to store? it changed the way
0: that you visit a bar? Yeah, so that is a really good question. I really loved working on this book. It's got about, oh, I've lost track now. It has at least like 75 homebrew recipes, beer recipes. I made them all. I made them all several times, (laughs) many of them several times. Some of them didn't work out the first time and I had to tweak them. Um, It was a year of really intense brewing. I was working a full-time job and I would kind of work until about five and then I'd get a batch of beer going on the stove. I'd start that mashing process and then I'd go back to my desk and I'd finish answering emails and then I'd go back to the kitchen (laughs) and make beer and then end up brewing beer until like nine or ten at night. So these were some these were full days. I'm um, so
1: sad that we didn't know each other back then. This must have been like the best <laughs> thing to be one of your close friends back when that oh my was God. That all happening. And-
0: Yes. Yeah. That was, let's see, 2012 is when I was doing all of the testing for this book. And I was living in a tiny little 800 square foot apartment. So when I tell people that you can brew in any size place, you don't need like a huge, you know, garage or, or a huge brewing setup. Like I was, I did the entire book in an 800 square foot apartment. There was beer everywhere. There were were cases of beer stacked behind the front door, open any cupboard. There was beer in there. It was, um, my husband is a very, uh, a very nice man (laughs) to, to have put up with all of the, all of the beer everywhere. Um, plus he got to drink it. So, you know, offset, (laughs) offset. Um, but the biggest upside for me, aside from the fact that I got to brew beer kind of as my job was that I learned the process in and out and not just the process, but all of these styles of beer, like, it, I started thinking of it almost like a language. Like, you know, you can kind of speak a couple words of Spanish or a couple words of French and kind of get by, but then like mastery of that language is a completely different thing. And that's how I felt. I felt like I, I went into this process knowing a little bit how it worked and kind of being like, yeah, I love beer and I love beer brewing and I've, you know, brewed some beer and I want to do it more. By the end of this book by the end of testing all these recipes and writing all the recipes and doing so much brewing I just felt like I felt like I could go into a beer store and be like all right I think I think I want a little more biscuit malt in this one you know and I'm going to try this the citra hop I think that's going to be really good but like I just knew how it worked and I felt like I could see the connections between styles a lot more like the way that the British styles, um, the British pale ales and the British IPAs, the way those transformed when they came across the ocean to the United States and transformed into the to our you know West Coast IPAs and the steam beers and like our pale like just seeing the connections between the different families of beer was really cool. I love that. So, That's so
1: fun when you can start to see yeah. like historical or geographical context to like just an object, you know, or like something that yeah. you enjoy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so so that definitely changed the way that I saw beer. And it changed the way that I looked at it at um, like when I was at a, a bar or going to the liquor store to buy a six pack. Um, people often ask me if I still buy beer or if I only just drink my own beer. And I'm like, of course I do. <laughs> I love beer. <laughs> I, I Equal opportunity beer drinker. If it's yeah, homebrew, sure. uh, if I'm at a bar, like whatever. But um, it definitely made me more adventurous. Um, it like, yeah, it made me more adventurous. It, I feel like you do understand, like you look at a beer menu and you kind of understand what you're going to get or you have certain expectations. Like I look at a beer menu and I'd say, oh, okay, here's an IPA from Lagunitas Brewery. I know that Lagunitas does kind of hoppier styles. Am I in the mood for that? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Like you kind of, like, I just felt like I had so much more context for all this stuff. Um, and more context for like when that beer, excuse me, when the beer came to the table and I'd look at it and start tasting it, like, it's just a little more context for like, oh, what went into this? Like, how did they get that cool hazy glow oh i think it would they maybe maybe they added some oatmeal to the to the brew Mm, they have such a nice like foamy head on that i wonder what where that you know and you kind of start to put these things together and it just changes your appreciation for this thing that you're drinking that's Um, so cool that reminds me
1: very much of the first interview that i ever did on this show uh which was bird watching and she Mm -hmm. was talking about the enjoyment that she has like when she's basically doing anything, you know, it's like she goes for a walk in her na- Like a lot of people go for walks, you know, but mm-hmm. when she goes for a walk, if a bird flies by all of a sudden her evening is heightened, you know, it's like this extra <laughs> thing, you know, this extra thing she gets to notice that maybe other people don't notice very much. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like that same thing for you. Like the guy next to you at the bar gets brought a beer and he's just like, oh, sweet my beer. And he just, you know, enjoys the taste of it or whatever. But you're having this like extra deep experience with this beer
0: yeah yeah exactly well and it's a conversation starter too like if i'm out with people that like we try each other's beers they want to know what i think we talk about it um sometimes i start talking to that guy next to me at the bar um and and we'll talk about the beer like it's 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 fun it's it's a it's yeah it's really fun
1: that's great (laughs) All right, Emma. So let's go ahead and finish this thing up um, with a couple pieces of advice. So for one, let's give uh, some first time brewers, like whatever the best advice is that you think you could give to a first time brewer that's going to try it for the first time after this. What would that be? And then if you want to follow that up with the best advice that you would give to somebody who is already a home brewer.
0: Mm, Good questions. So I think the best advice for a first-time brewer, um, and hopefully this doesn't sound like too much of a, a cheat answer. I think the best thing to do is to team up with somebody else who's already brewed beer and and just do a brew day together. Um, I think a buddy system is just it's just the way to go. Like if you have someone there who's already brewed a batch or two of beer, they can help you through the process. They can explain when, oh, this doesn't look right, or like, oh, don't worry about that. It does that all the time. You know, like it's just it's just really, really helpful and really nice to have somebody there with you. Um, so that's my biggest piece of advice for for first time um, brewers. Um, although I'm going to add on a second, I'm going to give you two pieces of advice. Yes, <laughs> my perfect. My second thing is is go into it with just go into it with a sense of adventure. Um, I think it's reasonable to expect that you will make a good batch of beer with your first batch, but just Embrace the mystery of it. Embrace the fact that you're not going to feel totally comfortable with all the steps. Just have a sense of adventure. Know that it might mess up. Like you might mess up your first batch or two of beer. Um, one of, I think my very first batch got an infection and we ended up throwing it down the drain. But it was super fun to make and I still really enjoyed it. And obviously here I am. So don't let those little things like deter you or scare you away from just trying it. Just try it. Um, yeah that's that's what i think love it um and for more advanced homebrewers they don't need they don't need much advice They <laughs> i think once you start homebrewing it's just if if it's the if it's something that you find that you really like doing there's just no stopping you like homebrewers are some of the most like enthusiastic curious try anything people that i've ever met um so they don't need a lot of encouragement uh the only thing i'd say is is you know don't stick too close to those rules um find the wiggle room find the the areas where you can you know bend things a little bit or or try your own hand like don't don't stick too close to the recipes so. yeah
1: break those rules yeah. there you go break, emma
0: break the rules i uh, see my publisher knew what she was talking about so. I love
1: it. so good <laughs> Emma thank you so much for coming on the show and yeah anyone listening you should definitely pick up Emma's book I'm putting a link to it on my website so if you go to the half hour intern post for this you can uh, check out Emma's book Um, and it's so great if you've never brewed beer before there's obviously a lot of just advice for a setup and this and that um, and a ton of extra stuff that we obviously didn't get to cover here and then even if you have brewed beer before like she said there's so many different recipes in there as well Um, so you can find some really cool beer recipes so um, anyways Emma thank you so much for coming on the show this has been great
0: thank you i've i've had a lovely hour talking to you or half hour i guess (laughs) it's (laughs) it's like always
1: an hour it's so it's so funny like i (laughs) i named the show half hour intern like thinking like oh a half hour will be enough time to talk to people and it never is enough time to talk to people but that's the way it goes i guess it's a good thing you know
0: you get excited it's hard (laughs) to stop
1: talking (laughs) for sure all right thanks emma
0: thank you very much talk to you later
1: Hey, everyone. It's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you told a friend about it to help spread the word about the show. And if you've been listening to the show for a little while and been enjoying yourself, I would really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That's a way that a lot of people learn about new podcasts. And the more reviews and the better reviews that a podcast gets, the more people that that podcast ends up in front of. So that would be a really awesome way to help the show. And if you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, yeah, that's all fine and good, Blake, but uh, what are you going to do to help me out? Well, how about being a guest on Half Hour Intern? That is right. You could totally be a guest on this show. So if you have been sitting there listening to this show and thinking to yourself, you know what, I do this totally awesome thing for a living. Or you know what, I have this awesome hobby that I'm really, really passionate about and I would love to tell people about it. Go to halfhourintern.com and click on the submit your ideas link at the top of the page. And through there, there will be forms that you can fill out to get in touch with me about the possibility of coming on the show and being a guest yourself on the Half Hour Intern podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening.